You may be seated. All right. Galatians chapter 2, as you know, we're going through the book of Galatians. And happy Reformation Day. And to those of you who are in Sunday school, you know what exactly what I'm talking about. And I hope you were paying attention because we're going to build on some of those things as we go through this morning. Galatians chapter 2, and while you're flipping there, let me open in a brief word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you that in your wisdom you have placed us so late in church history that we can look back and build off of great men who boldly understood and stood for what you have plainly taught in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to go through the text diligently this morning and apply it to our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. It was on this day, October 31st, 1517, that according to Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. And what was surely unbeknownst to the German monk at that time, that rather simple action would launch the world and church into chaos and completely reform the church in such a profound way that every single Christian from that point onward has been radically affected by that reformation. Martin Luther was concerned that the Catholic church of his day was filled with vice, and he was especially concerned over a friar named Johann Tetzel. And the crass and, and what Luther considered to be abusive ways, he was obtaining indulgences. And what began as a scholarly disputation over the nature of indulgences quickly became the most significant series of theological de debates and reform in the history of the church. And at the very center of that conflict is the issue of justification. In fact, a lot of times when we think of the history of the Reformation, we think of the five points of Calvinism. Calvin, of course, would come after Luther, and the five points, as they're called, would actually come after Calvin. And then when you do your, your, you're beginning your study on the Reformation, and you start hearing things like indulgences and these different papal abuses, and you think, well, what is the connection between election and sovereignty and all that, and, and, and some of the more practical things like indulgences that actually was the tinder and spark that sparked the Reformation? And the bridge that connects those two things is justification. And this was, over the course of Luther's life, his central concern. And it is here that the ripples of the Protestant Reformation would stem from Luther's question. And Luther's question was this, how can a sinner stand before a holy God? And through the study of scripture, including the passage we will look at this morning, Luther began to develop his doctrine of justification. 1515 and 1520, he began to work through these things. First, he recognized that a sinner was moved into a state of grace as the result of God's declaration and not the intrinsic righteousness of the individual. And, and this led him to draw a contrast between law and gospel. And Luther saw that the law was only able to condemn men. 
before God and having no power in itself for its own fulfillment. And the gospel, on the other hand, was simply the promise of salvation which needed to be believed. And it is through this contrast that he recognized through Scripture that Christ then fulfills the demands of the law. And it is then through faith in Christ that we are recipients through what was called an alien righteousness, and a righteousness not our own, and therefore are able to stand before a holy God. Put simply, beginning with Martin Luther, the reformers taught that justification was God's legal declaration of innocence that was pronounced on the basis of faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Thus a sinner was called to believe on Christ and nothing else. And God declares that sinner innocent because Christ takes that person's guilt and grants his own righteousness. Now this sounds very familiar to us. Even just the basic contrast of law and gospel, we're very accustomed to hearing those things. In fact, they're, they're so embedded in our vocabulary, alien righteousness, that, that so much so that even non-confessionally reformed churches have been vastly influenced by the Reformation and have borrowed and taken a lot of these contrasts because they recognize them to be biblical. But in Martin Luther's day, this was not natural ways of speaking. This is not how these things were taught. In fact, this was virtually unheard of in Luther's day, and it is largely because of Luther's boldness that we see these truths as so elementary. And so in what follows this morning, I want to set up the historical debate for you, and then we will look at our text. And I want to point two things out, just two things. I have four or five points, but I want really just two points. And that is this, that the doctrine that Paul taught was the doctrine of justification that the reformers taught and preserved. And second, that it still matters today. It is a doctrine so central to the gospel that it is always under attack. And while we have the distinct advantage of standing on the shoulders of Reformation giants, we must not lose the heart to fight for this doctrine, nor can we lose the ability to do so. But before the 16th century, go back to the 5th century. The 5th century is when the first battle over justification occurred because of a man named Pelagius. Pelagius believed that men were free agents and were therefore unimpaired by Adam's fall. What Adam left us was not a sin nature, but a bad example. And consequently, we are all free to live perfect lives and never sin. At least hypothetically, that is possible. Further, Pelagius believed it was possible without divine grace. God commands somebody to do it, and therefore they must have the free ability to do it. But grace is offered to the sinner and is helpful, though not necessary. And and justification then for Pelagius was the process of a, free, a person freely choosing to overcome sinful habits, okay? A modern liberal theologian, Lemon, Lemon Abbott, essentially holds to a, a Pelagian view of justification. And, and in the larger uh, progressive Christian or, or liberal Christian uh, things today, they are essentially Pelagian in their understanding. This is what he says of justification, quote, Justification means that Jesus Christ offers himself to me as my divine companion, and if I accept his companionship, I can be made virtuous, although I have been guilty. 
Okay, so Adam was a bad example. Christ is a good example. Grace isn't necessary, but it's offered. You should take it. It's helpful. And when you do, you can be made virtuous through the companionship, the good example of Christ. Roman Catholicism rejects the Pelagian idea of justification. However, they still view justification not as a one-time event. And that is going to become key in Reformation teaching. It's it's that justification is a one-time event. But for Rome, it's a process. It's the process of becoming righteous. The process of becoming righteous. Specifically, it is said that at a person's baptism, okay, at a person's baptism in, in Roman Catholicism, they are infused with God's grace. And this is where they break with Pelagius because for Catholics, divine grace is necessary. It's not just helpful, it's necessary. And so this grace is infused at baptism. And that is the grace of justification, thus enabling the sinner to become righteous. The baptized sinner then cooperates with this grace in in their life. And to the extent that they cooperate with this grace, they are justified. And so justification is the process of cooperating with divine grace. And if you committed a mortal sin, you were removed from the state of justification. This is, this is Roman Catholic doctrine. And, and so this is what leads to what Catholicism calls the second plank of justification. And that is penance. And we learned a little bit about penance this morning in Sunday school. But, but a person who has fallen from their state of being justified through a mortal sin could be reinstated to that state of justification through penance. And that is why Catholics go to confession. Confession is part of the sacrament of penance through which he can receive absolution and then do works of satisfaction. And if you were in Sunday school, you see where we're going. And these works make it fitting for God then to restore you to the state of grace. And so within Rome's system, which of course is the backdrop for the Protestant Reformation, there are two causes of justification. Baptism and penance. Okay? And, and justification is not a singular pronouncement. It is a lifelong process of cooperating with grace to become righteous. Okay? Let me read for you from the Council of Trent, which was 1546 and 1547. So this is after the time of... Luther. This is what they said. Justification was officially said to occur in three stages. First is the preparation of justification. Okay? This, is, this is prevenient grace. And if you're familiar with Arminian theology, it's, it's basically the same idea of prevenient grace. It's essentially a Roman, Roman Catholic idea. And so this is the first, the first um, act of justification wherein a sinner is made possible to be justified. Okay, by provenient grace. He is now able, by his own free will, this is a quote from Trent, able by his own free will to move himself to do justice in God's sight. Okay, that's the preparation of justification. Where through provenient grace, you are now able through your own free will to move to be righteous before God. And second is the beginning of justification. And this is the infusion of God's grace at baptism. Okay? And then there is the increase of justification, and that is through the observance of the commandments of the church and of God, faith cooperating with those works. Those are those works of satisfaction. And so these uh, believers, Catholics, can increase in that justice received through grace at baptism and then are further justified. Okay. 
against these views of justification. The reformers taught that justification was not a process, but a singular event. It's not a process, but a singular event. It is that event wherein God legally declares a sinner innocent. John Calvin said the reformed doctrine of justification is the main hinge on which religion turns, unquote. Okay, this justification is on the grounds not of infused grace, but of imputed righteousness. We are imputed the very righteousness of Christ, and thus the grounds of our justification is the righteousness of Christ. And the means of it is faith and faith alone. And so where the Pelagians deny the necessity of grace, the Catholics deny the sufficiency of grace. And the Reformed view is that grace is both necessary and sufficient, and it is precisely This doctrine, which I want to show you in our passage this morning, and I want to point out five things for you in in regards to justification. Justification is necessary for unity. It is by faith in Christ alone. It answers the charge of lawlessness. It promotes holiness. And finally, it leads to God's glory. Look at verse 15. Justification by faith is necessary for unity. And really, we know this from our message last week. But it's worth pointing out again just briefly because this section on justification has a larger context in which Paul rebukes Peter. He rebuked him for acting hypocritically. And and so this is not here out of place as if that was a practical concern. And, And now Paul wants to move on to these weighty academic doctrinal matters for the intellectually stimulated to debate and discuss. No, Paul rebukes Peter, and then he offers theological rationale for his actions. Why is it that Peter, through what Peter had done, through his actions, caused so much disunity? And justification by faith alone is the theological underpinning of a church being unified by the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 15. But we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works. A helpful footnote for you. He's not saying that Jews are sinners or even that they are lesser sinners. This was simply a way of speaking to speak of the separation between Jew and Gentile in the Old Covenant. Okay? And, and so the Jews enjoyed the, the privilege of being the covenant people of God. They were separated from Gentile nations. And, and, and through Leviticus and the prophets, you see this made very, very clear, that the intention was to separate from the sin and the sinful practices that characterized those Gentile nations. Okay? Uh, put, put another way, Paul is agreeing with the premise that being a Jew has a certain advantage, at, at least from a historical redemptive perspective. Something he makes explicit in Romans. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, Romans 3. He's pointing out that if God accepted people on anything other than righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, then Jews would have the upper hand. If law-keeping was the standard, what better advantage could you have than to be the ones that received the law? If if who your parents were was what mattered, then again, the Jew would have the advantage. The Jews had every real advantage. That's why he says we were Jews. 
But even we know that it's not through those advantages. Yet we know that a person is not justified by any of those advantages, real as they may be. Here's the point. Justification answers the question as to on what basis will God accept you. The answer Paul gives is faith in Christ alone. And if your church says, yes, faith in Christ, and also a particular ethnicity, a particular background, a particular interest, a particular age group, or anything else, then like Peter, it is a denial of justification by faith. Last year, Saddleback Church held a church service, and I want to read for you a portion of the invite to that service. They posted this on their website. This is their invite to a church service. It is not enough to say we love people. We have to show love. So if you are an African-American and or a black member of Saddleback, you are invited to a special gathering. It continues, quote, For everyone else in our church family, I invite you to pray that God will use this night to begin the healing process. Please note, the level of acceptance is not faith alone in Christ. It's faith alone in Christ and something else. And, and, and as a, perhaps as another footnote, I point out that the rationale for this service was a healing service, and that's actually worse because it's understanding that there was division in the church that the gospel either didn't or couldn't account for. And, and so this, this segregated service was, was necessary. And this is why this is so important. And so if you're thinking, Caleb, you are being too sensitive. You sound just like Jordan. Look, this is a bad idea. We all agree it's a bad idea. And what Bob Jones University did was a bad idea too. But we have to leave room for Christian liberty. And we have to recognize that that they're doing things just a little bit different. And, And yes, churches can take it too far, especially when it comes to the consumerism things. Of course, some churches have taken it too far, but, but really, we have to be more gracious, and we have to leave room for churches doing it their way. And, and so, is it really a big deal to have a church service for a particular ethnicity, or a special service for our Garth Brooks Hungarian fan flish, fly fishing fan club? Dear Christian, it is a huge deal. Because whether you recognize it or not, it is a fundamental denial of the gospel. On what basis is our unity? If it is on anything other than what Christ has done, then we have denied justification by faith. This is why having lunch with Jews and not Gentiles was so gross to Paul. Because the basis on which Peter and Barnabas accepted others was on faith in Christ and this other thing and something else. And yet the basis on which God accepts a sinner is on faith in Christ alone. Nothing else. No interest, no background, no penance, no hobby, no ethnicity. This is why we come down so hard on the seeker-sensitive movement and the consumerism of church. It is not because we are ogres and hate the idea of having fun in church. At least for me. I don't know about Jordan. You'll have to ask him, but... No, it's because Paul makes clear it denies the very heart of the gospel. Recognizing that your unity is on the basis of what Christ did is the foundation of church unity. The gospel of justification by faith eradicated the hostility and divide between Jews and Gentiles. If it can do that, it can conquer any other division 
the world can offer. Look at verse 16, our second point. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. This is why Paul stresses that we are justified. We are declared innocent, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. This is the great equalizer of the gospel. All men sin, whether they had the law or not. And therefore, lawful observance doesn't make you a law keeper in all respects. And so Paul then excludes any sort of law keeping or anything else as the grounds or means of justification and concludes that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ. There there are several things worth, worth noting here. First, because it is by connection to Christ and Christ came to call all men to repentance, justification is accessible to all men. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And while this is a blow To the self-righteous, it is a comfort to the poor and destitute. Because any sinner may be justified. Because no sinner has an advantage over any other. If you call to the name of the Lord for repentance, in repentance and in faith, you will be saved. And he will in no wise cast out. The second thing we need to note from this verse is that it is essential to understanding justification, sorry, that it is essential to understanding justification is this, is that Jesus and faith are both necessary to be justified, but not for the same reason, okay? And and for this reason, theologians distinguish between the grounds of justification, which is Christ, and the means of of justification, which is faith. And I want to explain this to you because you'll, you'll recognize as we go through this is very, very important. The grounds of justification is not your faith. It is Christ's righteousness, okay? You will often hear uh, people say that, that faith is a virtue and so that, that Christians have faith and so we see this as a good thing. And so if you hear Christians speak this way, you might get the idea that faith, being so virtuous, justifies you. That's not true. Okay, first of all, faith is not a virtue. Okay, faith is not a virtue. Faith itself is neither a virtue nor a vice. It simply describes your trust or lack thereof in a thing. If I jump off a cliff and I break both my legs and you come to me and you say, Caleb, why did you do such a thing? That was a bad idea. That was a dumb thing to do. Why did you do it? And I said, well, I had an immense amount of faith that I could fly. You would not say, well, that that is very virtuous. I thought it was silly, but now I see it's virtuous. No, it's still a bad idea. But I had faith. I had tons of faith. I really believed that I could fly. It's not virtuous. If your faith is in your own goodness, or the collective goodness of governments around the world, or in your church to bring global peace, then your faith is misplaced, and it is not virtuous. It is foolish. Faith in Christ is virtuous. Precisely because of who he is. Because he is virtuous. Because he is worthy. Christ is the worthy one. And it is because of him that we can be justified. If we are to be declared innocent, we need an innocent record. And if we are going to be declared righteous by a God who himself is righteous, then we need a record of perfectly keeping the law. And so we are justified then by imputation. 
And there is a double imputation that occurs. The first is that our sins are imputed to Christ and he pays the penalty for them. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, you'll know the verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was not made a sinner. He was perfectly innocent and that never changed. However, what did happen is that he was treated as a sinner. Our sin was counted to him. It was imputed to him and he then pays the price. Because justification is a legal declaration and not a transformative process, we know that what Paul is saying is that judicially, Jesus was declared guilty even though he committed no sin. And he did not become a sinner. But he was the divine scapegoat. And he was imputed our sinful record. And the second imputation that occurs is not our sinful record to Christ but Christ's righteous record to us. And and this is necessary because being sinless isn't enough. The, The law was twofold in that it calls for certain punishments for uh, certain performances. If you, if you committed a certain sin, it called on a certain punishment. However, the law also required people to do certain things. It wasn't just don't do these things. It was also do these things. And so if we are sinless, we still could not be counted righteous. It is true that we didn't do any of these bad things, but we still wouldn't have a record of properly doing the things we were called to do. And so our sinful record is imputed to Christ. Christ's perfect record is imputed to us. And this is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, the same verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Watch this. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so imputed to us is Christ's righteousness. And we are declared righteous by virtue of our relationship to Christ. Not because we are inherently righteous, but because he is Now you can see how God can declare a sinner who is anything but righteous to be righteous without impugning his own righteousness. See, if God was just so moved by emotion that he just said, okay, I'll just declare you innocent. I'll declare you righteous because you're not there, but I just, I'm there. I love you and I... And I want to be gracious. If he was just moved by by emotion, we would not think that's honorable. A judge is not honorable for letting somebody off the hook and saying, well, I know you did it and I know the evidence is overwhelming, but I really like you and so I'll, I'll not punish you. You're innocent. That's not righteous. We wouldn't expect that from God. And yet the gospel explains how a righteous God declares an unrighteous sinner righteous without impugning his own righteousness. All right. That's the grounds of justification. Christ's righteousness is imputed to his people, and we are judicially and legally pronounced innocent and righteous. 
Okay, now I want to move to the means of justification. The grounds of justification, Christ's imputed righteousness. The means of justification, and I want you to notice the difference here. This this brings us to how we are connected to Christ. Okay, faith. So justification is grounded in the double imputation between Christ and his elect. Now we want to understand this connection between that person and Christ, and it's faith alone. Faith is the trust in what Christ has done. It, It is living as if Christ really did those things, because he did. It's living as if he really was who he said he was. That's faith. But, but there's, a, there's a common misunderstanding when we speak of justification by faith alone. And, and many understand it something like this. And, and I've heard this more times than I can count. And you, you've probably heard it as well. But, but it goes something like this. We cannot earn our salvation by works. We're not good enough. And so God has graciously offered Christ's righteousness to those who know they can't earn their salvation, but who nonetheless believe in Jesus. And and so they accept the gospel offer as it were. Usually this is given in in some sense of, of free will. They freely chose to accept the gospel. And so we know that faith is not enough to earn our salvation, but it is enough then in the eyes of God who sort of grants eternal life on the basis of this faith. It might be popular, but that's not the biblical teaching, and it's not what the reformers meant when they spoke of justification by faith alone. Proponents of this view are quick to say that faith is not a meritorious work. That that is, it, it earns no merit with God. The problem is, is that on that scheme, it is a meritorious work, whether you admit it or not. Faith is something you do. It's something you freely chose in in response to the offer of the gospel. And and, and so it's sort of seen as God sort of lowered the bar. I know, Caleb, that you're not righteous enough to earn salvation. But I'll sort of lower the standard if you admit that you're not righteous enough. And so you sort of come up a little bit. You just admit, I'm not righteous enough, but I have faith. And God says, okay, that's good enough. It, it, it's, it would be like going to court, and if you were sued for a million dollars, and you said, oh, I just don't have the money, but I'll give you 50000 and then you could settle. The, the problem is, is God's not going to settle out of court. It's his character that's under attack and his righteousness that's at stake. He's not lowering the bar. Faith is not the thing you do to impress God enough so that he then justifies you. This is why we have to distinguish between the cause of, or the grounds of justification and the means of justification. This is why when the reformers spoke of justification, they said it was the instrumental cause. Faith is the instrumental cause of justification. What they meant by that phrase is that faith is the instrument. It's the tool for a particular purpose. Think of faith as, as the tool that connects you to Christ. Okay. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you needed electricity to your house. And, and so what you need is to be connected to a source of electricity. And therefore, you install wires, and the wires bring power into your home. 
And so we could say that the power is coming from the wires. And in a sense, that is true. But wires don't produce power. They're just the tool that connects you to what does. Okay? Faith does not earn you justification. It's just a way of explaining our relationship to the one who does. Faith connects you to Christ, and it is his imputed righteousness that saves you. And that then serves as the grounds to justification. And this brings us to our third and fourth point, which really can go together. But one of the immediate charges against this doctrine is that it will create a lawless person. If you teach this, it creates antinomianism because there is nothing you or I can do. And so why bother? There's nothing you can do. And and it's not the act of believing that justifies you. And so it's going to create Christians who keep sinning because there's no motivation for holiness because you can't do anything anyway. And so if law keeping will not contribute to our standing before God, then why bother with the law at all? We might as well just do whatever we want. And this is one of the chief criticisms of the Reformed doctrine. In fact, if you, if you listen to a Catholic today, they will largely give you the same objection. And they'll say that what the Reformed doctrine of justification does is it creates a legal fiction. A legal fiction. A legal fiction is something that is, is stated and acted as if it was true, but in reality is not. And so a good example of a legal fiction today is is if a couple gets married for the sole purpose of immigration. It's a legal fiction because they're declared married, they're treated like a married couple, but in reality, they don't live together, they don't love each other, they have no intention of, of acting like a married couple, and so their lives don't change, nothing changes, but legally, they're treated as a married couple, and so that is a legal fiction. And so the accusation is, is that if you're declared innocent, but you're a guilty sinner, then you have created a legal fiction wherein sinners are declared righteous, but they live and remain as wicked sinners. Because justification is not the process of holiness, like the Pelagians or the Catholics taught. It's just this legal declaration. And so the accusation is, is it creates this legal fiction. There's a certain logic to that. And if you're wondering if if there's a good answer, there is. And just sit tight. But notice in in verse 17, Paul's strong condemnation of this idea. Can Christ be a servant of sin? Certainly not. No. The the issue is the assumption behind the accusation. The, The reformed position does not create a legal fiction. And I'll explain how that's true in a moment. It is true Their sinners are accepted to God as righteous, though they are not. That is true. That is true. But this only takes place because God has first joined them to Christ, and this in its turn implies a real transformation. This is why Paul calls Christians a new creation. Obviously, then, to return to the old way of life is inconceivable. His strong condemnation likely goes back to the issue uh, with Peter and Antioch. And and verse 17 is somewhat ambiguous and and has been translated a variety of ways. But as I understand it, the basic idea that, that seems best to me is this. This is what one commentator says. 
as a paraphrase, Peter, don't you realize that your open table fellowship with Gentiles is a repudiation of the law of God? You are actually engaging in sin, my brother. And furthermore, when you try to justify this kind of behavior by appealing to our common faith in Christ, what you are doing is making Christ an agent of sin. What Peter was saying that he was still in Christ, but he also needed to keep the law. However, he still couldn't perfectly keep the law. So he was found to be a sinner. And this is what Paul means with the phrase, we too were found to be sinners. And verse 18, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So it was actually the doctrine of the Judaizers and the hypocrisy of Peter that could rightly be charged with lawlessness. Because they invoke the name of Christ and the law. And then they can't keep the law which on their system is needed for justification, and therefore they have made Christ the agent of their sin and inability to keep the law. The lawless ones are the ones who insist on justification by the law. But Paul says that the law was destroyed when he put his faith in Christ. Why would he now begin to rebuild it only to prove that Christ was a lawbreaker? Right? It's important to note the law itself was not destroyed, okay? It was fulfilled. It didn't just disappear or go away. Uh, rather, and, and Paul will explain this uh, later on in, in Galatians, the law served its purpose in a redemptive historical sense. And Christ, therefore, did away with the Mosaic law by fulfilling it. The law itself was not destroyed as if, as if Jesus just woke up one day and said, I'm kind of done with the old Moses thing. Let's do a new deal. Uh, It it was fulfilled in Christ, and what was destroyed was the law's power over a person. The law holds power over you if it legally declares you guilty. If by the law you are guilty, then the law holds power over you because by the law you are condemned. But because the righteousness of Christ was imputed to Paul, and Paul was therefore legally righteous, the law's ability to condemn him is destroyed. That's why the law cannot condemn anyone who is in Christ. Not because of a legal fiction, but because actual righteousness has been imputed. All right. So he answers the charge of antinomianism by turning the tables on his, on his would-be accusers by, by showing that it's actually their view which bears that burden. This is our fourth point, that justification by faith promotes holiness. The, the question remains, though, can the Reformed view, can Paul's view of justification actually deal with the objection? It can. Because we died to the law, we are free to live to God. The burden of the law was perfect obedience. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18. And without perfect adherence to the law, one could not expect to receive eternal life. And in addition, the consequence for disobeying the law, disobedience to the law, was death. Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. 
Okay, so the curse for disobedience was death. And the, uh, so the consequence for disobedience was death, and the standard was perfect obedience. And we cannot reach this standard. In fact, because we are sons and daughters of Adam and Adam's race, and because of our own sinful rebellion, we are doubly guilty by the standard of the law. The value of the law, therefore, is not in its ability to justify, but in its ability to point a sinner to the one who can. And that's why we can say we died to the law, because we are covenantally connected to Christ, who fulfilled the law, and was punished according to the standard of the law. He suffered the death the law required. And so by being dead to the law, the law no longer exerts dominance over the believer. Not not only have we died to the law, freeing us to live holy lives unto God, but we are united with Christ in his death. This is why justification by faith is not a legal fiction, because it is based on a living reality. Not your own living righteousness, but your living and active covenantal union to Christ and his righteousness. And so the very thing, the death of Christ, that disconnects us from the law, which concerned the Judaizers, is also the very thing that connects us to Christ, which is the reality that answers their objection. This union with Christ extends beyond dying to the harsh realities of the law. They extend also to the resurrection and the newness of life. Notice the result of dying with Christ is twofold. First, we are told that Christ lives us, and secondly, that this new life is by faith. And so, just as sin and the law was the operative power in Paul's life, now the operative power in the believer's life is Christ himself. And so, you can see how serious the charge of antinomianism or lawlessness really is. The believer is connected to Christ. And therefore, the operative power in his life, in your life, in my life, is Christ. And therefore, to live in habitual, unrepentant sin or lawless living is a gross affront to the gospel. That is why Paul can hardly even allow the thought. And he certainly cannot allow the accusation to stand. Christ walked the earth. He obeyed the law through his own deity and divinity, but more practically by the power of the Spirit. We are connected to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is that relationship that we define as faith. Therefore, to be justified by faith alone is the furthest thing from a legal fiction. It is the result of the most reality-transforming relationship possible. And so now the apostle says, we live by faith. This means that our lives are now motivated by thankfulness and love for the one who sacrificed himself for us. What greater motivation to holiness could there be, dear church? That is not external. The law is external. 
It promises external rewards and external punishments. And those do have their place, but not for the believer. Because we have internal motivation. We are justified by faith, but we also live by faith. John Calvin said it this way, because if you're going to talk about Martin Luther, you have to talk about John Calvin also on Reformation Day. Quote, it is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. Let me read that again. It is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. To say that you have to go back to the law or back to anything else after being justified by the righteousness of Christ is to visit the graveyard. And so in reality, the reformed view of justification does not create a legal fiction. And it certainly does not lead to antinomianism. Rather, it describes the most foundational, life-altering reality that in turn provides the most significant motivation to holy living that one could possibly imagine. Dear friends, we do not obey the law of Christ because we have to. We obey the law of Christ because we get to. What else could we do as a fitting response to the one who laid down his life for us and who lovingly knows us and cares for us and guides us in the way of truth everlasting? This is why Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Because he understood that truly, genuinely, Loving God would be the greatest motivation to desire honorable things and be the greatest internal ability to carry them out. Finally, verse 21, justification by faith leads to God's glory. Because of this, it is only justification by faith alone that brings glory to God. It is only what the reformers understood as so central to the gospel message that does not nullify the grace of God. If we, like the Pelagians, deny the necessity of grace, then we have nullified grace. And if we, like Roman Catholicism, deny the sufficiency of grace, we nullify grace. And if, as is common today, and as the Judaizers suppose, we have to do certain things in order to warrant our standing before God, even if that thing we have to do is just believe and have faith that we can, be, that we, we can have faith, then we have nullified grace. If justification could come by works of the law or your free will to believe, then Christ died for nothing. If those things provide redemption, then there was no need for death. There was no need for Christ to die. And so what happened just over 500 years ago when God raised up godly men to retrieve the gospel from heresy and defend it in the face of opposition was enormously significant in terms of church history. Men like Luther, Calvin, Bullinger, Zwingli, Beza loom larger than life, and they should. But the simple fact of the matter is they rose up and did what every generation of God's people has been called to do. 
And as we have seen, losing the doctrine of justification by faith was not unique to the 16th century. It was not unique to the 5th century, and it is not unique to the 20th or 21st or 22nd century. Because it is so central to understanding the gospel, it is a doctrine that is misunderstood and attacked constantly. And when, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, he would not have had the slightest clue about how God was going to use him to rescue and preserve the gospel of justification by faith alone. He had no idea. But he was only concerned to understand and teach what the Bible taught and only what the Bible taught. And dear friends, Park City Gospel Church, we have the same charge. We have no clue how the Lord will use us. But we are called to stand on the shoulders of giants before us and understand and defend what the Bible teaches and only what the Bible teaches. The gospel only gives proper glory to God if it is rightly understood and articulated. And we must get it right. And if Paul could rebuke Peter when he erred, and condemn the Judaizers for promoting a false gospel, then we must continue to turn the church on the hinge the reformers so vitally understood and valiantly defended. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for every single person that you have chosen by grace to save. And we thank you that in our own church, and in many other churches across Canada and the U.S. and the world and church history, that there has been many, many men and women who have understood these things and men who have boldly preached these things and women, mothers who have been so faithful to nurture their children in these things. And may we, as we look back at church history in a unique way today, May we be so appreciative for how you used those men, how you used them, how you used their intellects. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us, maybe not to the same extent, maybe not in the same way, but help us to be faithful to the same gospel. And as we become uh, so uh, enamored with the past, may we not rest on their laurels, but realize that they just simply did what you asked and laid down an example for us. Help us to be faithful on all things as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray, amen.